0: Welcome to 5 Things About, I'm Chris Hatzis. 5 Things About is for you and your inner curious cat. The part of you that just loves to know what others know about inventions, ideas, people and places. You've heard the proverb, curiosity killed the cat. The rest of the proverb is, but satisfaction brought it back. So go on, knock yourself out and bring yourself back. Today we explore 5 Things About the Teenage Brain. Our host today is Amy Bougea, and she's talking to Dr. Jared Cooney-Horvath from the University of Melbourne.
1: Hello, my name is Amy Bugea. I'm from the Melbourne Neuroscience Institute. Today we are exploring the world of the teenage brain. We all remember that life as a teenager could be an emotional roller coaster, fraught with baffling feelings and challenges. But how much of this results from neurobiology and raging hormones? Researchers now know that brain development in adolescence continues to change well into their early 20s. The main change is that as adolescence progresses, unused connections in the thinking and processing part of the teen's brain are pruned away. At the same time, other networks are strengthened. This is the brain's way of becoming more efficient we are joined by Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath from the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. Jared is an expert in the field of educational neuroscience with a focus on translating neuroscientific principles to enhance teaching and learning practices within the classroom. Welcome, Jared.
2: Thanks for having me here.
1: Jared, you're a cognitive neuroscientist working in the field of education. Can you tell us a little about your research into the brain?
2: Yeah, I um I actually started with kind of med- the medical side of stuff when I got into the brain. So way back in the day, I was a teacher. The brain stuff became sexy. So I thought, OK, I'm going to go learn that with the idea that I'll bring it back to teachers at some point and say, here's how we can use it. So for a long time, I kind of did medical brain research with stimulation, thinking... <laughs> totally macabre that we could maybe stimulate kids' brains someday. That's what you do when you're young. You think, yeah, I'm just going to zap kids' brains and they'll be smarter. But uh, over time, I've since progressed now into translating, so living in that world between neuroscience, psychology, and ed, and working a lot with schools again to say, okay, we know here's how the brain works. We know how this is manifested in behavior. So here's how we might be able to apply this to improve learning in our classrooms.
1: And what sort of teen were you growing up? I
2: was alternately nerdy. See, I think I was, I was kind of that nerd who did a lot of reading, a lot of music listening of classical, more so than rock. And then when I hit about junior year was when I was first introduced to beer, and that's when I became cool. So <laughs> I was a nerd until that point, point. then I became kind of hard to handle for a bit.
1: We've all bridged that. <laughs> Tell us a bit about teenage risky behavior, like smoking, drinking, and using other drugs. I
2: think everyone who's ever had a teen or been a teen knows that they're kind of more at risk for addictive behaviors. On the risky side, there's there's reasons they, they will do it. But one of the primary reasons is we, we kind of have this pleasure center is the easiest way to kind of think about it in the brain. And during the teenage years, not only does it physically grow, which is totally weird with the brain. Most times we don't talk about the brain literally growing or shrinking. But a big node in that actually physically grows during the teenage years. And it responds weirdly. So it only really responds to very visceral, big, emotional things. So whereas you and I, if we got one gold star, we'd be happy. We'd say, good work. For teenagers, they don't have any one gold star, nothing. Two, nothing. Three, Meh. Once they get up to four or five, that's when they start to get activation of this reward. So what we start to see is, yeah, risk-taking starts to increase because we think they're seeking out that reward and it requires more and bigger things. They're not responding like we are. So it just kind of keeps snowballing and then they do weirder and weirder and weirder stuff to feel good.
1: So should teenagers be encouraged to take healthy risks?
2: Oh, what do you think? What's a healthy risk? What would you think?
1: I guess a healthy risk in terms of standing up and doing public speaking or joining a debate team. <laughs> do you think they're going to go from drugs to debate team?
2: Oh, my goodness. If you could do... What's weird is there is some research to show that when you shift kind of your addiction, that, yeah, absolutely, you can transfer drugs into writing. So there is definitely reason to think, yes, we can push them in that way. Um there's a bit of a double-edged sword also, though, is because they're so highly emotional and attuned. Let's say we push them into public speaking and they have a couple of bad experiences with it. What we could do is actually flip it so now they just totally avoid it. For the rest of their life, they think that is evil, that is bad, don't do it. So I'm, I'm all for experiences and pushing and feeling uncomfortable moving past your boundaries, but just always be cognizant that we could, if we push too hard too fast, that could flip on us.
1: I hope I'm not alone in remembering all too well my parents yelling at me to clean my bedroom because it was an absolute pigsty. Does the brain hold any answers as to why teenagers give the impression of being so lazy and untidy?
2: Oh my goodness. We have a um, we have kind of this dual growth thing going on. And one of the big areas of growth during teenage years is the frontal lobe. So the frontal lobe, if you want to think about it, imagine the brain has all these programs. The world comes in, all these senses come in, they trigger off bits of the brain that like to process that stuff. What the frontal lobe does is shut down a lot of those programs. It's a massive inhibitor. For a long time, we thought it kind of organized them, but really all it's doing is saying, nope, 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 and whatever's left on, that's kind of experience. During adolescence, the frontal lobe seems to kind of explode. It starts to connect with everything. So what we see is massive amounts of shutting down. So stuff gets in, but the frontal lobe says, hey, I'm talking to everything. So everything turn off. We have this kind of over-inhibition. And that typically then manifests as being lazy, as not cleaning your room, as not doing anything. So this is kind of, combine that now with what we were talking about with risk-taking and the reward network, and you get this kind of alternate boredom, ennui. I'm not going to do anything because I'm over-inhibited, combined with high, massive risk-taking because, my goodness, big things do feel good. So that's kind of where we get this dichotomy and different parts of the brain developing differently lead to this boredom slash risk-taking we see in teens.
1: Sounding like a recipe for disaster at this stage. it
2: It is very tricky. The good news is we've all gone through it, so we know we can survive it, but it is very tricky.
1: Absolutely. So teenagers are known to be moody. Why do teens seem to feel the frustration of no phones at the dinner table or the pain of a heartbreak or outrage at the man so strongly?
2: Oh, the man, we're the man. They um it, so go back to that kind of reward thing. We have this heightened sense, well, lessened sensitivity requiring heightened stimulus to actually even feel anything. And at the same time, we have this emotional core of our brain, kind of controlled by what we call the amygdala, which is getting those heavy, inhibition signals from the frontal lobe, so it's just constantly being turned off. So because of those two things, what we see is the children, the students themselves, increasing their own emotions just so that they can feel them. And so this manifests as if you and I measured our emotions throughout the day, we'd be kind of up, kind of down, but for the most part, kind of flat. We're just hovering around middle. Whereas kids, they go real high, then real low, then real high, then real low. They don't really have a middle. So this, of course, and it's because of the wiring, it's because they really can't feel much of of anything unless they exacerbate it and make it big. So this is why it manifests as these massive love affairs into you've ruined my life for the smallest thing into, oh, you're the best parent in the history of the world. Who knows? (laughs) They keep us guessing.
1: So what tips would you have for parents and adults when arguing with teenagers?
2: Very simple tip. A lot of people say, why do teenagers argue? That's not the question. The question is, why do adults argue back? Teens and adults, they fight differently. We use cognitive processes to fight. Now, we'll have fights with our spouses that become emotional. And we know when we've crossed that line where it's like, this is just going bad. Teens live in that world. So we come in trying to cognitively argue points and try and get them to understand stuff. They're coming at us from that purely emotional no thinking involved during that argument stage so we're literally not using the same rules and i think with our experience it's our job to rather than their job to try and not fight with us it's our job to say you know what i'm just not gonna engage with that have a good time though
1: great advice Now for the perennial question, why do teenagers go to bed so late and why is it so impossible to get them up in the morning?
2: There's a a really weird thing we found. So everyone has their circadian rhythm. It's this 24-hour kind of cycle where you're awake and then chemicals start to shift and drop, and now you get sleepy as kind of melatonin increases. And it's pretty common. We all kind of follow the sun. That's what's triggering our responses. For whatever reason, in the teenage years, and this is animals, mammals across the board. And it's even in birds and stuff too. During adolescence, take that whole cycle and just start pushing it forward a couple hours. So whereas you and I will get tired at 10, they don't even start getting to that stage till midnight. And whereas you and I start to wake up at 6, 7, they don't even get there till 9. And no one knows why it happens. The only prevailing theory is if they stay up later at night during teenage years, it gives them more time to reproduce to procreate which just sounds like fun storytelling to me but we see this time and again during the teenage years the entire sleep rhythm just shifts which raises an interesting point we start school very early when we know biologically they're still essentially asleep when we're starting school so do we and people have tried it do we shift school time to match their circadian rhythm Or do we acknowledge that most teachers who work at schools are adults and we match it to theirs, where it is now, starting early, ending early so we can get home and go to sleep? So we have this kind of disconnect between school hours and actual teenage circadian rhythm hours.
1: Jared, could you please tell us the difference in between teenage male and female brains?
2: (laughs) That is a huge question. Uh, Here's the rub. Ask some people and they say there isn't one. The only difference is in the way they manifest their behaviors from it. But ask other people to say there absolutely is a difference without putting my foot in it and trying, <laughs> trying to walk the line so I don't make too many researchers angry. One big difference is timing. So even if the developmental stuff is the same, it appears that men and women go through it differentially. Women seem to start slightly earlier. And men seem to start slightly later, and then the output points can be anyway. And at the same time, now now take away the brain and just go into the behavior. The manifestations of these changes tend to be more risk-taking, loud, controlling, dominant behavior in men, and typically seem to be more controlled, thoughtful, cognitive behaviors in women. Whereas men, if they get if teenagers get into a spat as guys, their natural instinct is to try and expand your chest. Let's go at it. Whereas women start to think more cognitively and say, okay, how can I manipulate a situation through words, through thoughts, through deeds rather than through control? And those behaviors then start to shift the brains differentially as well. So that's why as adults, we kind of have different ways of thinking about things. And it's driven by how we choose to respond to the changes during teenage years. And then those choices and behaviors push the brain down a certain path. Now, again, it's it's all a spectrum. There are going to be some males who are totally not like that, and they're kind of more closer to the females. Females, more closer to the males. So it's it's not a one or the other. There's a broad swath of everything. But for the most part, that's kind of where we sit on the guy-girl thing at this point.
1: So, Jared, what strategies could teachers take away from your advice about arguing into the classroom when dealing with teenagers?
2: Absolutely. The best – it's going to stay for teachers and parents. Don't argue. But I think one of the good things we can do as teachers is bring them into the fray early on. So, there are some students who, following trauma or high home stress, will always be difficult to break through. But for the most part, you're going to have windows of opportunity. And usually towards the beginning of the year, that's when they're good. So the best thing you can do is as a class, bring them in, say, okay, we're going to set up our set of standards. Here's our behaviors. If we do X, we're also going to set up our consequences. So if you push a kid, here's what's going to be your consequence. Together you agree on those all as a class. And the idea is then you become highly consistent with that. So regardless of who pushed Here's the outcome. Regardless of who made a bad comment, here's the outcome. And it's the same from the first day to the end. So, what happens is when you then get a kid who starts to get overly emotional and trying to be combative and argumentative, you can cognitively and calmly not engage with that. Just say, hey, here's our rule set. We've all known it. We've all agreed on it. Here's what's going to happen. Done. Let it go. They're going to flip. They're going to argue. They're going to yell. But over time, they're going to decouple that kind of punishment or consequence from you. They're not going to view it as, you're just mean to me, you're angry at me, they're going to recognize when they calm down that, yep, that was, we all agreed on that. So the more you can kind of upfront set rules and consequences, bring them into the fray, and then remain consistent with those throughout the years, come hell or high water, you're going to have reasons to go one way or the other, don't do it, stick with the consistency, and that's actually going to help them start to regulate their behavior better.
1: I like the sense of community that comes out of that structure as well, that the students would support each other in ensuring good behavior.
2: And I think that's good, too, with families as well. I think a lot of the time we tend to think there's adults and then there's kids. And as an adult, it's my job to kind of control this situation and they'll just learn. The more we can incorporate them, bring them into it, the more agency they feel, the more they start to actually control the network quicker. They don't push back as hard. They don't fight as hard because they're now part of that game and they realise that fighting and pushing back is only going to hurt them as well. So the more we can kind of say, all right, we're different, but we're playing the same same game, so let's do this together, kind of the better this, and easier we can make all of this.
1: So, Jared, why do some adults sometimes forget what it's like to be a teenager? You,
2: you tend to see this a lot, where we'll, we'll talk about teens and say oh, you're just acting crazy without realizing, yeah, no, okay, hey, 20 years ago, I was doing that too. And believe it or not, there's a, this is a big brain question. So this isn't just merely, uh, we forgot. There's a process in the brain by which we interpret incoming information through our current kind of, con- we call it schema concepts. The easiest way to get it is our story. Our story about today will dictate how we interpret the world around us. At the same time, Our story that we have today changes the way we remember the past. So every time we bring up a memory, we don't bring it up accurately. We bring it up through our current lens, through our current understanding. And this physically changes the memories. I mean, this is where we get false memories in court. This is where you have people saying, "Uh, my brother and I, he swears he was lost in the mall when he was eight, and I swear that was me. We We don't know who it was because our memories change with our current stories. So reach adulthood now, when we think back to being teenagers, we don't accurately remember what we felt, what we did. We reinterpret it through how we understand teenagers now. So we kind of think we must have been calmer, we must have been cooler. Or if we did act a fool, we either knew what we were doing or it wasn't really that bad. We've totally rewritten our memory of it. So now when we see teens, we can't, it's really difficult with our new stories to look back and say, yep, 100% empathy. I get it. I've been there. Largely because we're not there anymore. So we don't really have the perfect memories of actually being there. So we see kids and we just think, well, why can't you think like me? And it's going to keep happening. When I'm 80, I'll look back to today and I'll remember it through the lens of me as an 80 year old. It will be totally different than how it's actually transpiring. And that's one of the tricks of the system is we're constantly changing our past to match our present.
1: That makes total sense. I've buried many memories. <laughs> oh,
2: it's it's kind of scary when you think about it too, but it's it's how the system works.
1: So is there anything that we haven't asked you yet that you'd want to touch on about the teenage brain?
2: It's growing, it's developing, it's weird, but it's important to remember that it's it's different for everyone. It manifests different for everyone. It, well, as a teenager, were you? what were you like?
1: Pretty naughty. <laughs> so we,
2: we've got some of us who are naughty, and then you'll have some people say, well, when I was a teenager, I was totally fine. Mm. And some parents say, no, my kids are great. It's going to be different for everyone. So these are just kind of general principles and themes. But if we do just kind of acknowledge it, yep, they're going through some neurological changes which are going to manifest behaviorally. And although it seems weird, the entire point is to help them get control of this system. So it's all chaos, it's all wild, but the end point is so important. And there's personality, adulthood. We're forming the connections whereby they can run their own ship. And so as crazy as it is, it's so important. So the more we can kind of acknowledge it, recognize it, support it as it's happening, as opposed to fight against it, I think the easier we might be able to make it. (laughs) Well, however easy you can actually make teenagers, I guess.
1: Thank you, Jared. Your research sounds absolutely fascinating.
0: It is very fun. Thanks for having me. So that's five things about the teenage brain. Or possibly six things. We're good with words, not with counting. Thanks to Amy Begea and Dr. Jared Cooney-Horvath. This podcast was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on the 21st of June 2017. Audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour. Production by Arch Cuthbertson and Andy Horvath. The Five Things About podcast is a University of Melbourne training program created by Dr. Andy Horvath. Still curious? Nip on over to our other podcasts up close and eavesdrop on experts for a different flavor of satisfaction. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Five Things About.